love and good morning. This is Uncle Eli. I'm recording this podcast for you. It's a beautiful morning here and just uh, just north of Oakland, California. I'm traveling traveling at top speed here on the 101 heading north driving past the sparkly lights in the refinery of Richmond some very beautiful low fog morning Um, thinking about a couple of things to talk to you about important very important things welding one we get it's time to talk about wet metal and welding beads just what that looks like but I think first what I want to try to talk about is institutions art institutions specifically I think I can go into more details I've thought about some of the things I've said I've tried to kind of like sum up a deeper viewpoint I have um, I think I take a very anti-institutional stance um, but I, I do think there is some importance in institutions and that they have you know support lots of art and create jobs and create opportunities for artists that might not exist otherwise that's part of this there's the asterisk there um but the you know certainly they have their place i think i have a deeper crazier view um that institutions art institutions the way that well the way that art artists should really be dealt with is that um let's see as an artist if this is this is some fantasy thinking right is that um if you want to sign up to be an artist then you it's kind of a lifelong commitment and you get to move into a, like a large art studio warehouse space where you have free access to materials and studio space and all your costs are covered and there's you know there's room and board there's there's food there there's there's gardens there's a bunch of people it's kind of a you know a hippie kind of ideal commune community anarchy crazy party zone um, with all these art studios and then the whole thing is that you any art you make then is you know put out into this kind of government institution gallery that then the government can sell your art and that's how they finance um, this whole crazy contraption that is all the artists living together in anarchy separated from the rest of society because they don't need to deal with them anymore uh, essentially institutionalizing all of the artists. I feel like that's the nature of an institution that I think would really um, function. The problem is I think that, of course, in a capitalist functioning society, it would all be, um, you know, the food would be bland and the where there would be an oppression happening that I don't know... Um, 
you know, a, a squeeze of the dollar, as you might say. So I don't think it's actually possible to do something like that. I mean, that's definitely on some crazy communist, um, idealistic hippie stuff. But I think that's to to the the background. That is my my view is that we should do something really bonkers like that. Just let artists create and be weirdos and maybe everyone eventually wants to be an artist so everyone goes onto that side of the fence and then we all live over there with gardens and free food and just make art um, but until that day um, we have things like museums art institutions and such um, and so that's part of my anti-institutional stance is it comes from this place that, that I, you know, uh, that I don't, I think that uh, artists are always taken advantage of and artists are always given kind of the short end of the stick. And, and it's amazing in the, you know, as the artists are the creators of the, of the content, of the creativity that, that drives all of these institutions, large art institutions, museums, college universities, nonprofit arts organizations. Um, the creative force that allows any of that to exist and that, you know, many of these institutions purport to be fully supportive of it and existing around ultimately a lot of that is oppressed within that system because it's so, because of the bureaucracy, because of the squeeze of money, because of the need to like um, you know, exist within kind of a capitalist structure um, oh, the the art itself is often lost and especially the artists um, and I think the functionality of an institution is anti towards the functionality of an artist that often if you imagine your favorite artists um, they're probably pretty weird and they probably lived really weird lives and they probably had you know a lot of dysfunctions in their lives and they weren't all organized in type A and institution types um, that in fact the, the zaniness that they lived amongst was what makes them what allows them to create in their very creative way and so the institutions often in a way kind of crush that um, that reality and that that dysfunction of the artist in their need to be um, super tight and clean you know there's kind of this like feeling like in a museum in a like a white box space in a museum and like with its registrar and its curator like the thing that annoys registrars and curators most is artists coming into their white cube space and that that's like the most anti thing to a museum is this perfect like quiet white cube space the most anti thing to it is the artists themselves um, and then second is the art and this like kind of like messy dysfunctionality of art and 
I don't know if there's a way to mesh the two. I don't know if there's a way to reconcile those differences if part of those, like, the tension is just what, you know, is how it has to exist or what makes it good. Um, but I think that, you know, I spent a lot of time in that space thinking about that, that the tension in there and how artists can be supported, you know, in this way, how institutions can exist, how, you know, the art world, capital A, can kind of like exist and function and enjoy art, you know, how can we have art fairs and, you know, these kind of like big convention centers of art and like still really support artists at the heart of their like non-commercial ways. And uh, is that even possible? Uh, does this massive commercialization of art, has it, you know, created an avenue for only a certain part kind of artist to exist? I certainly know many artists that just haven't been able to be successful because the, the art world is so difficult um, and, and requires such commerciality and, and doesn't support um, a lot of, you know, really weird creative types, and you know, the only, the, the few that kind of make it through are often you know, either very commercial or kind of aggressive in their um, strangeness and often the quiet weird ones are the ones that are kind of um, left out and lost and um, I think there's a lot of really, really wonderful art that um, is lost due to the overbearing reality of the administration of institutions and how um, the churning of the institution and the need to you know, pay administration um, these enormous salaries to keep these institutions functioning so that they can exist to somehow support the arts. Um, that whole churning system ends up really. Uh, You know, crushing, <laughs> crushing a lot of artists' dreams, or ignoring a lot of uh, the most interesting stuff that isn't um, packaged and sold and commercialized properly. And I don't know if there's an answer. I don't have an answer here. I don't. I don't. You know, think there's an easy way because I think, like a, you know, said is that the institutions still play an important role to be stewards of the art and carry it into, you know, to, to show it to people that don't necessarily have access to art. It's, you know, like these kind of public spaces that create an access point, they create funding, they kind of create a group think that allows work to, you know, be brought to the forefront. Um, and, you know, they also then create this kind of editing process um, that could be good, that can make it so that, you know, 
the smart stuff makes it, but they also create an editing process that um, often squeezes um, squeezes out some of the real weirdos. And it's sad. It's sad when we don't have enough weirdos around. Um, more, more weirdos, please. So, these are my institution thoughts uh, about how institutions function, can function. What can we do to make them function more better? I don't know. This behemoth. I was talking to a friend the other day, and it's made this wonderful comment that uh, bureaucracies eat their own children, and I think that that's a very, uh, you know, just a, it was such a powerful statement, and, it, and this kind of idea of like, you know, these institutions, these bureaucratic institutions creating children, these beautiful things, and then at the same time destroying them. You know, creating dreams, but also destroying them. Uh, and, uh, you know, supporting artists, but also just crushing them um, beneath the weight of their need to kind of conform to certain uh, functional aspects, you know, I think um, as we find ourselves in more trying political times and more tensions, I think we find the institutions become more and more under fire and more and more are being um, asked to you know, toe those lines and also, you know, kind of, or, or that those institutions are put in that, in that firing line of political agendas and often back down. They're not the ones to lead those intense and controversial thoughts. The larger the institution the less likely it is to be on the forefront of a controversial thought. You know, who's going to be the most controversial? It's going to be the in individual artist. And you know, the least controversial is going to be the largest museum, the one that needs to answer to the most people, the one that's going to stay out of the way of some of those, you know, the leading edge of the political conversations. Uh, because that's the, you know, I mean, that's the nature of it. They're, they're answering to those people. They're trying to stay out of the way. Like, well, we don't want to get involved. But also, who's going to lead these changes of, of thought pattern in the, in society? Who's, who is bringing some of these thoughts to the forefront? It's going to be the individual artists. And so to be able to both support those individual thoughts 
and uh, you know the change to be the change agents. You know, I think that's the hard part is that these large institutions cannot be the change agents. You know, they can be the stewards of of the historical moments. They can speak to the changes in the past. But um, they can't necessarily be at that front edge because, you know, they have boards and they have funders and they have, you know, financial stakes and they have real estate and they have all of these concerns that are in many ways anti to that change that the individual artists are pushing and that the individual artists on the ground level they see in society and they push against and they know that that's where we need to change and the institutions are ultimately functioning on a you know a larger financial level with you know with the larger capitalistic structures of the society and not at that individual small level that is where the change is happening. You know, they're, they are the old guard and they're representing, you know, these kind of historical moments and able to speak to maybe some of these past intense moments, but, um, They're really the ones to be on the leading edge. And so, is it possible? I don't know. Could we, you know, can we create a commune that all the artists live on and no one's in charge? I don't know where we're going to get that real estate, you know. Uh, ain't nobody coughing that up. Um, but I think we can still fight for that ideal uh, that. Um, all of the artists get lots of gardens and then nobody tells them what to make and they get all and they get all the money split up evenly and then they just all produce because the thing about artists is they're gonna fucking produce you know that's like that's the reality is that if you know you're really making art you're making art because you have to um, so lock us all up inside of a garden. Um, that's fucking crazy. That's crazy. So, um, besides institutions, another thing I wanted to talk about was welding. Welding of metal. And I've talked about like preparation of metal and creating um, uh, you know a setup for fabrication like getting your parts prepped and everything um, I think I want to talk about actually like getting into that moment of creating a weld bead so let's say let's start with the easiest one let's start with a MIG welder 
uh, and mild steel. So uh, a MIG welder is metal inert gas and the gas being the shielding gas, the inert gas, a carbon or argon that would be used to purge the atmosphere around the weld of oxygen and allowing the metals to join. Um, the, the metal would, if there's oxygen available, the metal is going to want to oxidize to, which is, you know, essentially rusting. It's going to want to, um, in that chemical reaction that's going it would rather bond with the oxygen than itself but if you purge the atmosphere of oxygen it will bond with itself uh, in a fluid state rather than in that reactive hot fluid place um, oxidizing and turning into a different substance it would stay as the the metal and stay in a liquid state and then cool into and stay as a metal as it cools so with the MIG welder you're going to have the electrode will be the same as the filler metal the filler metal will be the electrode uh, the electrode being the point of the, the the circuit is connected that you close the circuit the the pointy thing where the spark comes out um, and that spark when you're using electricity to weld that arc the the electrode is creating is the thing that is getting hot enough to melt the metal and so when you're using the big um, that electrode is a wire a thin gauge wire uh, often a 0.03 or 0.035 um, thickness of metal um, and that is on a spool in a machine that feeds it at a certain rate out of the the handheld gun that when you pull the trigger on that gun it feeds the wire through the head of the gun um, it feeds that um, wire out of the gun and at the same time creates the electrical spark 
that melt the metal. So you have this wire feeding on a spool through the gun and then that wire is where the contact happens against the metal you're trying to weld. So you're essentially melting that wire that you're feeding out at the same time that you're creating the art that's melting the metal around it. So it's this kind of tricky moment of like creating this spark that's melting kind of it's melting three parts. You've got the two things that you're welded together and you've got the wire that you're also melting as the filler metal that you have a gap that you're trying to fill at the same time um, you're you have a gap that you're trying to fill at the same time that you're melting the two metals you're trying to weld together. So first, they all need to be of the same composition. Like, they all need to be this mild steel, in this case. Um, or if they're a stainless, they all need to be similar variety of stainless, or related, or I think generally if you have, like, two grades of stainless, you're generally going to weld you really only need to weld with the, the the filler metal only needs to be of the lower grade. You don't need to go any higher than the low grade of metal. Um, and so with mild steel, you've got two pieces of mild steel, you're welding together. You stick them together, you've got them either clamped or situated together in such a way and then you have this kind of this space that you're welding in between them hopefully it's not too big of a space and that's kind of part of the finesse of that is how much you can um, weld in between them <coughs> big gun and it has also around it when you pull the trigger the metal comes out and then also the inert gas is coming out around the head of the the nozzle that feeds the wire so you have this little wire feed jammer and then you've got a tube around that that's dumping the gas out of that And so the spark is being created, and at the same time, this gas is coming through the tube. Usually on the MIG gun, I'll set the line pressure to around 20 PSI. 
to feed the um, for the inert gas to clean that space. But, you know, sometimes if it's, it's a little bigger well, it might go a little higher. Or if it's windy, uh, if it's windy, you might need a little more gas. If it's really windy, you might just not be able to get a good weld. Um, but that can be an issue is the wind can just blow away that gas. Um, and, or if you're going from underneath, you might want to push a little bit more. Um, the same time you also need to keep that gun pretty close to the weld and that can be an issue as if you're trying to kind of reach into a corner or something um, that you might not actually be able to get enough of that gas into the space uh, and these are things you can tell on the metal the way the metal sticks the way it's kind of reacting on the surfaces the way it's arcing and the way it's laying down you'll be able to see if it's spattery or if it's a little darker crustier or if it's a little kind of has holes in it kind of swiss cheesy kind of holes in the well could be from the lack of or too much oxygen in the environment and it's not going to be sticking to itself it's going to be oxidizing and not um, not melting so this moment of melting this is what I've been wanting to get so I've been thinking about for months is this moment of the metal melting when you're sticking it all together um, metal melts like it's like wax where it you know it'll get a little softer and it when it gets hot but there's a moment when it kicks there's a moment when it melts uh, which is is different than a lot of glass and some of this is is chemical composition and, and this is not true across the board because You can make metal kind of do these softer things and you can make glass kick but in general Glass doesn't really have a melting point. It just softens and where metal does have a specific point when it goes from solid to liquid and that solid to liquid moment um, is kind of where you're riding with the weld is you're just like creating just enough liquid to combine the three parts the two pieces you're putting together and the filler metal and so those three things need to essentially kind of become a little liquid puddle right in that place you want to stick them together. And while it's a puddle, and while you have the two parts that you're welded together, 
melting and creating a little puddle, you're putting just enough of the filler metal into that puddle to fill in the space and create a nice weldment. That weld, the actual weldment, the little like crowned little area and how that sits um, between the two objects. Like imagine you are are putting two plates together, um, but welded together, you have two pieces of plate that are just going, you're trying to make a flat plate, and you're just essentially welding a seam. So you want to put those together, but you want to put, you want to bevel those edges, you want to grind those edges, so there's a 45 on each of those edges, so that then when you do put the plate together, and you're looking at the, well, there'll be a little V groove where you're trying to weld. And, and generally you want that to be, you know, depending on the plate thickness, you want that to be essentially as deep as possible because you want to get that penetration all the way through. Um, and, and some of that depends on whether you're going to the other side and how you're actually doing the weld and, what, and how thick the things are. Um, but say you've got these two plates together, you have your little V-groove there, then you're filling in that V-groove. You want that weld to sit just barely proud of that plate, but you do want the whole thing to be above the plate. You don't want it to sink down at all. And if you were to just, if you were very quickly in with your weld, and sometimes you do this with the first pass, is that the weld will be down below. Um, and if you, if you, if the weld is below that the tension will be greater um, when it's sitting below the surface the metal will shrink with the heat and so if you are if it's in a valley that weld will be weaker if it's below this it's also as far as like finish fabrication if you put the weld above the surface, then you can grind it back, and then you'll you create a space for that to to you 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 add more metal than you need, so then you can grind it and make it look all one cohesive piece. If it's below, you can't do that. You have a dip in it, and then if it's below, you also are creating more tension in that and making a weaker weld with that low point. And so you always want your welds to all be sitting proud, but not too proud, not too sticking up out of there, because sometimes that will be, you're just not getting enough penetration, you're not getting enough heat, or you're just trying to put in too much filler metal, and it's also making it a weak weld. Um, and so getting just enough, it will be... welding these two plates together one way that you'll do it is using a pattern that's like an S or a Z shape that you're going back and forth between the two pieces of metal um, using this S or 
Z shape, or it's almost a like a lightning bolt with like but that has curves in it so that you're kind of up and around the lightning bolt curve and then back to the other side and over it um, it's like if you took a lightning bolt and pushed down on the sides and curved the sides of a lightning bolt down um, you could make this pattern where you're kind of going back and forth between the two sides and bending if also if one side of the metal is thicker than the other uh, you might actually lean into that side with your pattern and spend a little bit more proportion a little bit more time on the thicker side than on the thinner side um, you know a slightly longer count on the thicker side and teasing it over onto the thin side so that you can kind of make an even well so your heat and how much heat you put into the metal is very important because this is your another parameter that you're dealing with is that if you get the whole thing too hot even if you get a decent well good penetration you could get the thing whole dang thing so hot that you um, warp things and make them and distort them away um, that's undesirable that you could be um, really blasting the heat in there and getting a good weld but then at the end the whole thing's going to distort and it happens through that kind of shrinking that will happen with um, with the metal shrinking and expansion and shrinking you can get some expansion that pushes into things and creates parts that are warped and then the, the surfaces shrink and it never shrinks evenly it's always very uneven and difficult to predict um, so some of this can then also come back to um, how you brace things how you clamp and cross brace and weld in attachments to hold things into place uh, kind of triangulate things before you start welding um, that's always uh, an important part of that fabrication setup how you clamp it and then how you also brace weld things that you might weld in parts that hold things that then you're going to cut and remove later but to kind of bridge things and hold them into place okay so um now we're in this weld bead in this little puddle that is the you know, often in a kind of quarter inch to three eighths, you know, eighth inch to three eighths size little puddle of metal that you're creating through this arc. And this arc is puddling that metal right where the arc hits. And in this case of the MIG, you're also at the same time feeding that wire. So it's 
wire is coming out, and as the wire is coming out of the gun, it is sparking and melting. And so it's puddling up, it's changing slightly the length of that actual electrode because it's it's feeding out, so it's coming out, so it's the distance is kind of changing as it's melting, and it's dropping into the weld, into that weld puddle, so it's also cooling that weld puddle slightly as it goes, because it's, it's heating with the electrode, but that extra metal is changing the temp a little bit. Um, so it's a very live action, you know, you're, you're painting with this hot metal in a very rapid, quick fashion, and it's, there's not a lot of time to think. It's very much like a live moment where the metal is melting and you need to be pushing the metal into it and moving both hands often, usually both hands. Sometimes you're bracing with one hand and the other hand's moving, but generally you're just like you're moving your both hands in some way and even your body or your head a little bit as you go so that you can see right where you're putting that metal. And all of this, this, this painterly action of the weld is what creates that nice looking weld. Like to make a good looking weld is to have a steady hand and be moving steady and have a steady heat and a consistent distance from your weld surface the whole time. Like everything needs to be consistent and moving smoothly for that weld to look nice because it's all going to show. It's very like it's it really shows up every little um, subtle move in that weld shows up. Um, So, um, in that moment, in that moment of puddling the metal, you kind of know what direction your hands are going. You know where that weld is going to start and how far it's going to go. And, and you've preset the machine to know what your wire feed is and your the heat, how much spark, how much electricity you're putting through that. You've got your inert gas set properly. Um, and you know your angles of motion, like how far you're moving in and out of that and where your hands are going to go. So all those are kind of preset. And then you've got uh, some sort of mask that you can kind of see out of so that you can see your well and you can see um, and you're able to get a view of this. Well, so that you can get that wire into it just so 
and then you are pulling on the trigger of the gun and the wire starts to feed out and it's going to create a it's going to create a spark that will have a sparking sound and often it's been described to me as the sound of frying bacon and if it sounds like frying bacon then it's doing it right and i think what this is speaking to is the consistent noise of the spark where it's a continuous rattly spark rather than a jumpy or splattery spark it's a consistent with a good lots of sparkles in there um, and so if that spark is consistent and clean then the sound will be consistent and clean just like bacon consistent and clean and So you're listening to that sound, you're watching the wire going in there, you're moving your hands. I mean, the hardest part is like, you get all this time of stuff lined up and you're in there doing it, you kind of just have this like quick second of passing over it for it to be right. And really for a good weld, you have to be moving quickly and it's just a, and then it's right. And if it's not, it's not right. Um, and so being able to kind of see that and understand that and, you know, it's probably in breath also is like a big inhale before and then as you exhale, pull the trigger, just like shooting. As you exhale, pull the trigger of the gun and start laying in your bead with a nice consistent exhale sometimes the beads going to take longer than one breath and you're going to have to breathe within that moment and calm your body enough and steady your hands enough to be able to create that well hopefully you've got a mask on underneath that hood though it's so crazy that hoods like the welding hoods never fit masks they're not designed to have masks they all should just have a mask built into them but they don't have respirator masks built into them and they also don't fit respirator masks you can wear a little paper mask underneath which is okay for particulate um but trying to fit a fucking mask underneath your helmet is like it's the most obnoxious thing that they don't all work together that way but Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the nature of this? Uh, so using your breath and body to kind of find that nice, consistent, smooth place to be. Um, it's another one of those like meditative moments because you're often really close. You're very focused. It's it, it takes a while to get to the point where you can stop focusing on it and still get a good weld. Um, for many years, I think you can just 
get in there and all you can think about is that wealth. All you can think about is your hands, your feet, your position, you're looking at the machine, you're listening, you're smelling, you're watching, everything. All your senses are super hyper-focused on this tiny little puddle of metal you're making. And you're walking that puddle down in between your two parts of metal that you're welding together. You're taking this little puddle of metal and you're just laying it down and you're taking this puddle and it's freezing right behind you as you're walking this puddle down this little crevice of two pieces of metal bringing in your filler metal and that's just all one consistent speed coming out of that gun there's not it's not changing on the mig gun you just pull the trigger and the feed rate is just consistent and so your hand needs to be consistent following that machine and it's you working in unison with a machine that's creating this spark and creating and, and giving you the filler metal and you're just following your hand along that trail just following along there making sure that you've got a good weldment um, it's a very fascinating moment a really wonderful moment of being lost in a, a technical tight little space um, it's kind of akin to like running a sewing machine you know you kind of have this like very rapid fire thing happening your hands are part of this operation that's feeding into it and your feet are part of the operation and but the machine is doing the the brunt of this work that you're kind of dancing around and it's a dance with a machine in a fast pace you know so you're you're painting in a way with this in this operation laying down a very consistent line it's an illustration technique um, in three dimensions and you know like a sewing machine putting together you know a seam like just laying down a thick ribbon of thread into some fabric it's you know it's all happening in rapid fire and for it to be smooth and beautiful you need to be moving steady and consistently the whole time you can't stop once you kind of have it dialed in you don't just stop and let it be you kind of are always moving in and out like drawing a circle you should always be following a curve if you're not actually curving the whole time you're not actually making a circle something really fascinating and wonderful about that and I think these are the moments of of beauty of craft is getting lost in these very technical moments um, of making where you can kind of dive into this after many many hours years of study to get to a place where it is it's working right and you've got something happening that's like um, that's consistent you've got something happening that is that you have control of in a very almost kind of chaotic space and that control is the craft is the part that um, 
you are controlling and that's the place I think that for me I love to go as an artist or craftsperson is into those little moments of technique especially when I spend all this time also thinking about institutions and like the you know the commercialization of art and these like the institutionalization of the creative process and the, you know the art world the arts you know the arts capital T capital A the arts taking over for the artist and the arts becoming this like anti-force to artists and not allowing space for the creative process and not allowing space for artists to exist and just get weird in these little meditative moments um, and so then it's just nice to get into those moments and meditate of the making uh, so put me in a garden and lock the door and give me some things to make and I'll throw them over the fence for you and you can have them uh, just give me some tools and some materials and leave me be oh man what a fate what a fate well um thanks for listening again um glad you're here glad I'm here um we're all in this together you know this big crazy this big crazy project called the arts uh let me go make some glass and got a big fun week ahead of glass blowing, mold making, flame working, cold working, kiln casting, um, lots of cool, interesting things happening. Um, so let's talk again soon about ways that we can make things. Um, all right. Well, this is the end of message now. Love you. Bye for now.